Hey there, Twitter. I hope you enjoyed that extra hour of sleep last night. Today we have a great show for you. Leslie Odom Jr. from Harriet is here, as well as Kenya Moore from the Real Housewives of Atlanta. So you stick right there, and we will see you on the timeline. I'm just going to twirl. Or try to twirl. Or attempt to twirl. <laughs> that was a bad twirl. <laughs> Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, he's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. The Twirl Show. Twirl! I just want to... That is a Kenya Moore reference. Yes. What did she say? It was when they were on vacation and she was like, twirl. Well, I forget the context in it, but it was like this... The context was, I think it was like a fight. That's and what it was. She yeah, twirled out of the fight, right? Yes, I think pretty much. Iconic. Legendary. It, it became her iconic catchphrase. So. I love it. Well, how are you? A long time to I see. I know. I know. I'm, I'm really happy to see you. I'm so, so happy yeah. to see you. It's fun to be a viewer uh, because I would try to watch the show while stuck in LA traffic, which is dangerous. So, Mom, I didn't do that. Uh, but in reality, <laughs> I did try. And uh, it was fun to see you all like really up here giving us girls the news and the funs and the fashions. Yeah. How was LA? It was LA. It was on fire. Okay. Literally. Literally. On on fire. I arrived and we, we at The Advocate have an office on the west side that was right next to the Getty Fire. So we had to spend the day, you know, coordinating, making sure folks were safe and doing all this other stuff. So it was a big, you know, reality check to me of like what it was like living in LA full time, yeah. but also that climate change is real and we should do something about it. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, well, good takeaways. Anyway, well, we have a really fun tweet for y'all today about one of my new favorite obsessions, yeah. The Morning Show. Here's a tweet from Charlie Dale. The Morning Show is soapy nonsense, not making the profound points it thinks it's making. A Jennifer Aniston Emmy vehicle, she's great in it, expensive, Cringeworthy every time Reese's character, who is inexplicably named Bradley Jackson, Why? speaks, and ultimately pretty enjoyable. I just, I feel so seen by <laughs> the issue with her character's name, mm -hmm. Bradley Jackson. And, you know, every part of this show is just doing the absolute most it can possibly do. Oh, my do. God. So, but I love it. I'm really enjoying it. Jennifer Aniston has been training her whole life. Oh, yeah. To play this much anger and rage and everything. It's great. She gets to curse. You know, she was on Friends, so she couldn't really cuss very mm -hmm. much. But this, she's letting it fly. And I'm obsessed with, like, this kind of, like, chaotic woman on the verge of a breakdown who's really rich and thinks we should feel bad for her. And also, like, controlling mm -hmm. and, like, just all of this lore around their workplace. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny also working here on our mm -hmm. own morning show yes. where things are like decidedly so much more chill mm -hmm. to get to see this like really over the top depiction of what things are like for them. So but, Wait, that's not like it is here? Not, I was watching this <laughs> Are you the Alex Levy and I'm the Bradley Jackson of this equation? Okay, we have been talking about this some and I do think that like, I guess I would be Alex Levy. And I've just been plucked out of obscurity, <laughs> and I'm here just like trying to tell my truths on the morning. And show. I'm having a breakdown because you're amazing. taking my seat. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah this it's is, a lot. Yeah. I do relate to Bradley. We live in the same part of town. Not Bradley. Sorry, uh, Alex Levy in the show. Oh, we there the you West go. Side yeah. of Manhattan. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. Well, um, I'm fully enjoying this show. So plans to keep on watching, and we'll take it to the timeline. What do you think of the morning show so far? Let us know using the hashtag #AmToDM. Mmm, delicious. That's what I think Ooh. of it so far. Well, here's a treat from BuzzFeed News. New, we sued the U.S. government for the right to see all the work Robert Mueller's team kept secret. Today, we are publishing the first installment of the Mueller memos. Here's a tweet from Jason Leopold. In response to my BuzzFeed News FOIA lawsuit, the government just released a cache of FBI 302 reports from the Mueller probe. Steve Bannon, Michael Cohen, Rick Gates, and more. Heavily redacted, but chock full of new details. And here's a tweet from Michael Del Moro. Bannon to Kushner talking about Paul Manafort three days before the 2016 election. They're going to try and say the Russians worked with WikiLeaks to give this victory to us. Can't let, let word get out. He is advising us. Joining us now to discuss is BuzzFeed News senior investigative reporter Jason Leopold. Good morning. Good morning, we're doing great, Jason. Thank you so much for your long weekend of work. Yes. That was impressive. <laughs> well, before we dive it's definitely in. Been a long week. It definitely has been. So before we dive in, Jason, walk us through what a 302 report is. Yeah. First, great question. So a 302 form is it's the type of form that the FBI uses to record interviews. Um, people may be surprised to learn that the when the FBI interviews people as uh, individuals as part of a, um, an investigation. They don't record it, uh, and there's no verbatim transcript. So there's this federal form known as an FD, FD is in uh, Frank David 302, and uh, it's the type of form that FBI agents use to collect information that, that, that summarizes uh, what individuals say during an interview. And they put that into a document, and that's what we ask for. 
Hmm. Well, let's get into some of that information, um, starting with the DNC hack. Um, what do these documents tell us about the situation and how much the Trump administration uh, knew about it beforehand? Uh, it's interesting. First, the the documents don't really tell us, you know, who is responsible for for the hack. Uh, these are uh, uh, questions that FBI agents asked individuals like uh, um, Deputy Campaign Manager Rick Gates and and Steve Bannon about who knew what and when. But what we do see from these documents, as it relates to the DNC hack, is that uh, is that uh, the Trump campaign uh, stood to benefit from it, and that they were eager. To, uh, to, to see additional emails from the DNC being leaked so that they could benefit from it. There's one really amazing email uh, in this cache, and I believe it's, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken, it was one that Donald Trump Jr. had sent to uh, uh, Steve Bannon and maybe some others, uh, other individuals uh, who were part of the campaign. And it says, uh, I got a weird DM from WikiLeaks. And uh, this DM that, that Donald Trump then talks about in this email uh, says that there, there was a password and there's a picture, uh, and the picture seems to be a real person who was behind it. Uh, clearly, it seems to be referring to you know, the, the leaks uh, that, uh, uh, that were happening with regard to uh, John Podesta, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, what they were pushing out there, what WikiLeaks was pushing out there at the time. Uh, but there's, a, there's quite a bit of detail in these documents that further flesh out the narrative about how eager Donald Trump was as a candidate uh, to, uh, to see these leaks happen because they felt that it could benefit the campaign. Mm, and there's this really amazing moment in your reporting where Trump tells Gates, you know, more leaks are coming. And from that yes. document, does that show us that Trump was kind of involved in coordinating these leaks at the time? You know, it, it doesn't. So it, 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 the documents are redacted. Um, we don't know how Trump knew this. I mean, clearly the campaign had some sort of back channel. They knew that additional leaks were, uh, were, were coming. They, they, at least this is what uh, Steve Bannon and Rick Gates and others had told the FBI when they were being interviewed as part of Mueller's campaign. It's unclear how Trump knew this. Uh, but uh, it's it's amazing how how uh, desperate they were to to see additional leaks of Hillary Clinton's emails, and how they felt that perhaps if they could recover Hillary Clinton's missing emails, that uh, it could put, provide a boost to the Trump campaign. And it's really important to note, as, as the documents also make clear, that you know the Trump uh, campaign officials were were saying that. They were behind in the polls. They were running out of money. They needed something. They saw this these leaks as a way that could as something that would actually benefit them. Mm. Well, there's also a lot on Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner, uh, and that now uh, famous uh, Trump uh, children vacation in Croatia. What new information do we have about all that? Well, the the as far as the latter uh, part of that, uh, the vacation in in Croatia. I mean, it's it's to me, it's just such a great uh, piece of color and detail that's memorialized now in a, in a, in a uh, an FBI uh, uh, interview summary. And this is what Steve Bannon telling the uh, the FBI that uh, that uh, Jared Kushner was vacationing off the coast of Croatia with a Russian billionaire and uh, the Russian billionaire's girlfriend. And uh, Steve Bannon uh, goes on to say that his in own intelligence sources had told him that the Russian billionaire's girlfriend was, quote, questionable, unquote. And they needed Jared Kushner to come back to the United States to uh, uh, fire Paul Manafort. This was around August 2016. And uh, they needed him to fire Paul Manafort because the campaign was running out of money and uh, they had 85 days to go. So as far as that you know, that vacation, it seems to confirm it, right? It seems to confirm that this vacation off the coast of Croatia with a Russian billionaire that, that Jared Kushner attended uh, actually took place. Uh, and there's a later email in this, uh, in this cache in which Jared, uh, excuse me, in which Steve Bannon um, and is speaking to a, a person at Breitbart News, and they're discussing how to basically weaponize this information uh, about Jared Kushner uh, and, and use it against him. 
So before we let you go, Jason, something else that you all uncovered was that Paul Manafort was fired in August, but he kept working on the campaign right up until the election. How is that possible? You know, I don't really know how that happened, to tell you the truth. Uh, it's unclear from the from these documents. And, you know, we're going to continue to get more records uh, for years and years and years. So uh, the the but what we have right now is that we can see from an email here that Paul Manafort had been more or less acting as a consultant to the campaign just three days before Election Day. And he sends an email to Steve Bannon, uh, or excuse me, I think it's, uh, well, Steve Bannon was copied on it. Um, a lot of names in these documents. So he sends this email and, he, and he's discussing how he, th he thinks the prospects for Election Day are really positive. And he discusses how he briefed Rick Gates uh, and, uh, and Sean Hannity, uh, of all people, uh, about what he thought was going to happen on Tuesday. And then Steve, ba uh, Steve Bannon receives an email from Jared Kushner, and uh, that's essentially who Paul Manafort sent it to. Uh, but he receives this email, and he's, he's telling Jared Kushner, we need to avoid this guy like the plague, meaning Manafort. Uh, and they were very worried that, that uh, Manafort's association with the campaign that they that it would ultimately uh, reveal that maybe Russia was behind some sort of victory. So they wanted to keep his consultancy uh, top secret. Wow. Well, uh, it is all a lot. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'll talk to you guys soon. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News national political reporter Henry Gomez. It looks and sounds like Pete Buttigieg has caught up to Joe Biden in Iowa. A key Biden ally with some heat for Buttigieg and Kamala Harris said, we've had other flavors of the moment, you know, and some of them have shut down their New Hampshire operations. Ooh, Henry joins us now to talk more about his story on Buttigieg and Biden facing off in Iowa. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? We're, we're great. Well, thank you for being here this morning. But let's start with how is Mayor Pete gaining on Joe Biden right now? Well, it's a it's a couple of things. In terms of polling and organizationally in Iowa, the first caucus state, you know, over the last week, we've seen a few polls and they're showing a tight four-way race at the top. And whereas previously Buttigieg was you know, fourth or maybe fifth behind Kamala Harris, he's now in a few of these polls in third place, slightly ahead of Joe Biden. And then you have organizationally on the ground. Pete Buttigieg has a ton of money and he's been investing that and in building out uh, a field operation in Iowa, people that will get people to go and caucus for him uh, next February. And Joe Biden's had some fundraising woes. So they're, when you look at them both, they're two candidates who appeal to similar voters in terms of political philosophy, and they're going in opposite directions. Well, both of them, and as well as the rest of the candidates, just spoke at the uh, Liberty and Justice Gala, the LJ. Um, what does this big gala, what can it actually tell us about how a candidate is doing in the state? Well, I tend to think that some of the hype on this dinner is is over is overrated. But the key point here is back in 2007, uh, Barack Obama, then you know a senator from Illinois, uh, struggling in the polls behind Hillary Clinton and in some cases John Edwards, he really used that event as a breakout moment. Delivered a speech that everybody still remembers to this day. It kind of became the case he made throughout the rest of his presidential campaign, and it really lifted him from you know maybe a third place contender to the the guy who won the Iowa caucuses and eventually the nomination. Uh, back then it was called the Jefferson Jackson dinner. They've changed the name for, for some, for several reasons. And it's still considered the biggest event of the political season for Democrats in Iowa. So everybody going to this dinner, and I think there were 13, 14 candidates there. I, the math is off because Beto O'Rourke dropped out right before, but, um, everybody was looking to have their Obama moment, right? And the Buttigieg campaign was really hitting this hard uh, in the days up to it, building expectations that he would deliver that Obama moment with his speech. And I suppose that's in the uh, eye of the beholder as to whether he actually did that. <laughs> well, before he had that speech on that night, he and Biden both had pre-dinner rallies. How did those two rallies compare to each other, other? And what do they tell us about those two campaigns moving forward? <laughs> I think that might be like, you know, anecdotally, some of the best evidence of, of how these two candidates are are headed in, in different directions. You know, Buttigieg started his rally outdoors uh, about a half mile from where the, the dinner was. It was 
rainy and kind of gross in Des Moines that day. And the local police counted more than 2,000 people who started at the rally with them. They marched, um, you know, to the arena outside a huge show of force. They had Ben Harper, um, you know, this uh, artist that I really only vaguely remember from my early college days, but is a nationally known uh, musician, played at their rally. And then indoors at the convention center next door to the arena, you have Joe Biden and his supporters gathered, much more subdued affair. Um, there was plenty of space left in his ballroom for people to come if they would have wanted to. There was a local cover band called the Pork Tornadoes playing uh, and not getting much of a, a response. And it just like, it was just completely different, right? You know, you have the Buttigieg campaign marching outdoors, you have the Biden campaign inside, and then they go to the arena through the bridge inside that connects the convention center to the arena. So just really like the, the symbolism uh, there was, was said a lot. Wow, it sounds very colorful seeing all that yes. happen. <laughs> well, here's a tweet from Molly Hensley Clancy. I probably talked to 30 plus voters in Iowa this weekend and none of them brought up impeachment. I don't really think this is just an Iowa thing though. So obviously there's a lot of impeachment news playing out right now on the news, uh, but what have you found people want to talk about on the road? You know, a lot of people are talking about Medicare for all, which is getting a lot of, uh, a lot of traction at the debates when uh, the panelists ask the candidates. They're very concerned about electability or by a candidate that excites them to, to get out to the polls. And, and impeachment is always like a more of a subsurface thing. And Molly's uh, uh, tweet thread last night was was spot on um, compared based on what I'm hearing from people when I'm out on the road as well. They they want to talk more about these issues like uh, the future of healthcare, the future of the environment, um, social justice issues. Uh, very very concerned about that. Well, you know, they're concerned about the economy and kitchen table issues as well. But when it comes down to it, like Molly said, these people are very skeptical that a Republican Senate is going to vote to remove Donald Trump from office. So they're more laser focused on picking the nominee, the Democratic nominee that they think will beat Trump, presuming that he's still on the ballot uh, a year from now. Hmm. Well, let's end on this tweet from you. Uh, Signs of the Times in Des Moines. A bunch of Beto placards jammed into a hotel trash can, looking so sad in there. Mm. So Beto's out. Any sense of who his supporters might back now? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, like, they were so shocked by this decision and announcement on Friday. I don't think a lot of them had much time to process it. You, know, you might see that there's some symmetry between him and uh, Pete Buttigieg, but there was a lot of bad blood between uh, those campaigns. So I think it's going to take a little while for that to, to sort out, but his, his organizers, but his organizers and staff in Iowa, where he had a very big, incredible organization, they're going to be the ones that are sought after, you know, who goes to work for the other candidates and really helps augment uh, some of these uh, candidates that are looking to make their move. All right. Well, Henry, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Coming up, I'm sitting down with Harriet star, Leslie Odom Jr. Up next, it's Fire Tweets. Ooh, ooh. Welcome back. Let's see if I still can do this. Yes. Well, you know, we'll it's been a few days off, but I think we can still you get You remember there. how. <laughs> Lance, you tweeted, me rushing back from the bathroom at 3 a.m. so I don't lose any tiredness. Literally every day. Whenever I do this, I try not to open my eyes up too much. I don't know why I think that helps with not going well, back to sleep. I think it does because the light will wake you up. That's so, true. But yeah. then I'm like fumbling through the dark. I'm also like nervous for you. <laughs> don't like injure I would have come in with a bruise. Like I was trying to sleep, Alex. Uh, all right, well, Mills, you tweet it. Why, when you say, I had a dream about you, people always assume sexual shit? No, I went to McDonald's and you was the cashier. No, That's... bitch, this was just a platonic, boring dream about you. Don't you also have boring dreams where you don't have a man to get laid? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's actually not the next tweet, but I just was like, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> Let's take it to the timeline. What is the most random dream you've had relating to someone else that wasn't sexual? Tweet us using the hashtag aim to dm I dream about work. Yeah, I was going to say, time. I dream about work. Yeah. yeah. Or just like friends. You know, just like something boring. And, yeah. yeah. I also had to throw in a boy joke because I'd been gone for a week. You know, I was so really itching okay. for a single tweet. Getting out of it again. <laughs> Aries, you tweeted, marry someone who likes to leave events the same time as you. And I can totally attest to this. Like, you know, you, you have this moment sometimes where you both just look at each other and you're mm -hmm. like, it's time to go. Yes. Let's get out. And it's like that you sense each other are uncomfortable and you want to go and they're going to support you to go get the McDonald's, the tacos, or whatever you need to deal with the fact that you were social. Exactly. I'm looking for that person. Exactly. You'll find I, them. Look, I got another one. I'm, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's here. She's, she's here, single. She's reminding clear. us all. Yes, yes, there we exactly. go. Well, Louise, you tweet it. You're giving off hot dog water vibes right now. Leave me alone, bitch. 
I am convinced this is the new coldest response of all time because hot dog water is truly a specific kind of vial. And New York smells of it at all times. There you go. And that's why LA reigns supreme in late night food snacks because all y'all eat are pizza and hot dogs. Girl, we get you some carnitas tacos, some other types of tacos, I don't know. I feel like Los Angeles people are like hot dog water. Wow, <laughs> uh, you just called a whole metropolitan area hot dog water? That's not exactly what I did, but you know, like oh. the, the kind of, I don't know, the not nice LA types. Also we'll like hot dog water. Okay. <laughs> not oh Chanel, God, hot dog water. Okay, come on. <laughs> Let's All right, tune of the day. Comes from Brittany. Don't ever play YMCA for a group of drunk white people unless you're ready to witness the rapture. It's genetic. I can say, like, I have a contractual obligation that if mm -hmm. I've been sipping on some Pinot Grigio and YMCA comes on, I'm standing on a chair, I'm doing all the motions. It's I, how it is. As a queer person that's also half white, I tap my foot. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I like it, but not too much. That's fair. So, you yeah. know, it's genetic. It's something with us forever and always. Well, up next, there's more Aim to DM. Stay tuned. Here's a tweet from Ariana Grande. Happy birthday, thank you, next. I can't believe I've spent more time alone this year than I have in my life. I can't believe how many sessions with my therapist I've had, how many times I've sung this song, how much I've learned and healed, how much I still have to learn and heal. And another, I still don't know shit about love or have a clue what a personal life looks like other than hanging with pups and piggy, which, is I, which I've learned is actually more than enough. Okay, I just gotta say, I love Ariana Grande. She's great. So I, I love that she's being so open about mm -hmm. her struggle, um, as she has been, because yes. like she has been through it. For sure. And this gets into a bigger conversation, I think, about therapy yes. and how like it's okay to not know have all the answers to everything and how yeah. therapy can help you process that. Exactly. And what I've been appreciating about her since, you know, the terrorist attack and then losing her partner or ex-partner is that she's been able to let us in so publicly and be so good at kind of destabilizing stigma that is around therapy. You know, I've been going to therapy my whole life and for many years I've hid it from everyone because I was like, oh, this means yeah. something's wrong with me. And lately, through the help of like just stigma changing and more people being open like Ariana or others, is that it's like, no, it's just part of my self-care routine. You know, I deserve a space every week to talk about shit I'm going through because we're all going through shit. And yeah. I think Ariana's done a great job to show like, yeah, she's rich and she knows it, she's powerful, but she still is going through things and that's okay. Yeah, I've been in therapy for uh, like the past decade mm -hmm. and I have to say, like, like one of the biggest reasons why I think it's important for me is I understand the limitations, the, the healthy limitations mm -hmm. of my friends, of my family, yes. of my partner. And Ooh. I feel like, you know, if you're, for me, like I'm someone who struggles with anxiety mm -hmm. and I, I know like when my friends and family are out of their zone mm -hmm. to be able to manage these things. I yep. know when I'm a friend to someone, I know when something is above my pay grade yep. and I don't have the toolkit or the expertise to help them either with the stuff that they're going through. Mm -hmm. So I kind of see going to therapy as a way of um, like navigating mm -hmm. all of these things with someone who is a professional and yes. knows what they're doing. And what I love so much, I feel like we're doing an infomercial for therapy. Go to therapy now, 1-800-therapist. <laughs> is that like, you know, I struggle with, you know, I'm going through something and then I feel guilty because I pull a friend into it. And I'm like, girl, I'm going through X, Y, Z. And I know they're going through something too. You know, I'm a Pisces. I have a lot of feelings. And I feel feelings. And, you know, therapy allows a space for you to go and be really narcissistic the whole time. I don't got to ask you one damn thing about your day, therapist, except for I do the, how are you? Yeah. And I'm like, great, and the like, next hour, me. great, I'm paying for this time, sis. This is all me. And I think we all need that space where you can go and not feel guilty about sharing or giving people too much to carry. Yeah. And sometimes that happens when you're asking for help. Yeah, I also think like I want someone who's going to push me and reframe the way that I mm -hmm. think and challenge the way that yep. I think or the way that I act um, so like you can actually grow as a person. But I think one really big barrier around therapy is that it can be so hard to find yes. that right person. Um, and I know so many people in my life who have dealt with trauma mm -hmm. who then don't want to go to therapy because there's this idea that you're going to have to dig into everything from yeah. the past. You're going to be completely re-traumatized. You're not going to connect mm -hmm. with a therapist. Yeah. And you know, what people should know as we before we move up is that like when you're in therapy or you're trying to find a therapist, be selfish. Be like super narcissistic about it. I always tell people, find a therapist that shares an identity with you, that has a shared language so you can get there and not do any work. That ain't just about you. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be That's an asshole in therapy, be an asshole. Like it's your space to work out your shit. Um, and don't think of therapy as this place where you got to be the perfect patient. That's all people talk about. And it's not about it. It's really about you going to a place where you don't have to perform. You can just be. So go find a therapist. Yes. <laughs> I will now put my megaphone down and let's take it to the timeline. How has therapy changed your life? Tweet us using the hashtag AMTDM. All right. Up next, Sylvia sits down with Real Housewives of Atlanta star Kenya Moore. Ooh, I can't wait. Here 
Here's a tweet from D-Panks 2. Kenya Moore is the best housewife of all time because when she told Eva, told that Eva thinks that she's in danger to her kids, Kenya responds, what does she think I'm going to do? Take my ponytail off and beat her kids with it? Bravo, better never let her off my TV again. Our next guest was gone with the win and now she's back and twice as fabulous. Welcome, Kenya Moore. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Kenny. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. Thank you. So you're back for season 12. Yes. Atlanta is back. I, I'm so excited that my stories are back. That's what I call the show. Yes, your stories are <laughs> Right, yes. Um, That's old school. How does it feel to be back on the season? You know, it's different. Like, I'm I'm trying to get adjusted again because, you know, I was gone for a year. I had a baby in that time. And now I'm back and I'm a working mom. And it's like... Whoa, you know, I'm being thrown into the fire pit again. So that's, you know, it's 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 fun. Yeah. Um, and what made you mention that you were out last season? What yeah. made you want to come back after the year off? Was it that relaxing enough? Or <laughs> <laughs> Did you miss the drama and the girls? I miss the girls. I missed hanging out um, in certain aspects of the show. You know, it's a real sisterhood at times. Yeah. And, um, you know, Bravo is my family. And it's always exciting things to do even outside of the show. And obviously what comes with it is a lot of other business opportunities and stuff. So I really like to work. Yeah. And now that I have a daughter, I'm like, okay, I really have to be on my grind. So I was like, let me go and get that, uh, secure the bag. Let me get that bag. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. (laughs) 35,000 a year for just tuition. Right. Okay, let me get that bag. (laughs) And this season is so full of babies. It's like, you have a baby, Portia has a baby. You get a baby, you get a baby. Can you have a baby? Everybody's having a baby this season. And it's really, what does it feel like to see you guys at this life stage as a unit? Like, it's like you guys are all kind of just building your families together. Yeah, you know what? Um, it's it's really nice because we have more things in common to talk about. Right. Uh, I used to text Shamia mm-hmm. um, because we were only like two weeks apart. Yeah. Um, our children. And, um, and it was just nice to be able to speak to someone at four o'clock in the morning or, <laughs> you know, odd hours right. to talk about your baby, what you're going through, and are you scared? Are you excited? You know, what bu- diapers are you right. going to buy? So it was, like, interesting. So it's nice to be in that place where you have, you know, a different level. Of, of understanding with each other. Yes. And so it's been especially nice to watch you and Portia connect over this, especially for yeah. those of us who are fans of both. It's like, yeah. yes, I know they're <laughs> right. getting together a little bit. Um, were you supp- So last night in the premiere, Nini did not make an appearance at all. Were you surprised about that? Uh, no. Nope. <laughs> I was surprised. I, I was like, wasn't her choice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was not surprised. It wasn't her choice, honey. Okay, okay. Well, you know, there it goes. As Nini would say, bloop. <laughs> it's like a thing. Right. Um, and literally, I think that it's been interesting to see the progression with you, Nini, and Cynthia's dynamic, because last season when you made an appearance, there was an issue mm-hmm. about you and Cynthia's Little friendship. Little did I know. And yeah. then now Nini recently said she's looking forward to exposing the truth about cast members and mm-hmm. called out Cynthia for being pay- fake. I think the quote was, they might for once try to show C- the way Cynthia is truly on camera because who you guys have known her to be over the years is not who she is. I mean, is she talking about herself? Oh, right. I mean, because it sounds like she's talking about herself because she's the fakest one on our show. Mm. So instead of pointing those fingers at Cynthia, who is a very kind, very genuine person, who really doesn't always like to be in the middle of um, conflict, I think that is who she is. Mm -hmm. Um, Can she handle herself? Yes, absolutely. But I think with... Nini and with Cynthia, I'd certainly rather be friends with Cynthia because I know who she is and I know what she's going to give me. With Nini, you you never know. She's yeah. no one's friend. Got it. And you've mentioned about the se- season that um, you would like to see it be shaken up a bit, that you're a bit bored with the castmates. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, like, if you could shake it up, like, what would you do? What do you, do you mean with friends of the show? Do you mean with the girls holding the peaches? Like, what kind of arrangement do you think would spice it up? I mean, you know, listen, I came on the show as a single girl mm-hmm. um, looking for love, and you watched me go through my journey. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing another single housewife that mm-hmm. isn't in a relationship that is just trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That could be fun. Yes. That could be fun. And I I want mine a plus size girl. I want. I want a yes, curvy, I representation. Want, or, yes, that or you know a woman, another woman of color. You uh-huh. know, uh, maybe she's an Asian, maybe she's Latina. Just 
you know, spice it up. Yeah. Do something else. Okay, yeah, I could get yeah. with that. Um, we love Housewives of Atlanta here on the show, so much so that we named it the best reality show of the decade just last okay. Friday. Okay, yes. During our best of the decade segment. Okay. I want to know, why do you think, why, why do you think that Real Housewives is like the best Housewives franchise of them all? Um, I think that our stories are very relatable, that I, I think it sort of transcends race and age and, um, you know, social economic backgrounds. I just think that you can relate to it. It's yeah. a story for everyone. And it's also like you guys were just like made to be on TV. The quotables, yes. the gifts, the memes, right, like right. the sayings. <laughs> I feel like I use a housewife saying like once a week. Part of pop culture, <laughs> you know. That's a part of the culture. Yeah, yeah, we're part of the culture. We invent the culture, you know what I mean, to a degree. Yeah. We set the trend, so. We really do, yeah. I think that's why. And I want to circle back to your life real quick because we touched on Brooklyn, your baby, but yes. it's been such, it's really a tremendous thing to see you as a mom now. What have you, Thank what you. have you learned from motherhood or what is, how it changed you? I'm still learning um, how the capacity that I have for love. Mm. I never knew I had it. Um, just how much in love I can be with a, a human being I, in, in, in a different way. Um, patience, understanding, kindness. Um, now I look at myself like what kind of example am I being for my daughter? What choices am I making that she'll see? Um, how do I live my life? How is that going to affect her? So, yeah, it, it changes you a lot, the way you even think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Brooklyn recently turned one, so we want yes. to wish you a successful, like, happy first Thank year you. as yes. mom and her baby. It's <laughs> cute to see Thank her you. birthday celebrations. Do you guys have anything yes. planned? Um, yes. Well, we had a party for her. We're having multiple parties for her. Um, we're taking her to... Um, Paris, Ooh. Disneyland. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a turn up week for her. <laughs> Baby her birthday got a better birthday than most of us. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm like, my 30th birthday will not even be <laughs> on the first birthday. Um, you also have recently in your personal life talked about your split from your husband, Mark Daly. Mm. Um, how has it been co-parenting? It's been fine so far. Um, we de- we threw her party together, um, which was great. We got along wonderful. Our daughter has an amazing memory now of her parents yeah. loving each other, first birthday, and just putting her as a priority. Um, so that's really special to me, and that meant a lot. And it's it's been good so far. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys, I, do you feel like, do you have hope that you guys can work things out? Cause I know it's involved, but nothing yeah. is official yet. I think some yeah. of us are still like... Well, you know what? I think with given the proper um, tools, I think through counseling and and trying everything you can to make the relationship work. Yeah, I always have hope. I mean, I still love my husband. I know he still loves me Mm -hmm. and he loves our family. Yeah. And um, I think that when you have a unit, especially one that has been sanctified by God, mm-hmm. I think that you you owe it to yourself and your family to try everything that you can before you split. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talked about units and building a family. And I wanted to talk about Baby Quest because yes. you have been named an ambassador for that foundation. Yes. What does it mean to you to be named ambassador of something that like this. Wow, you know, I am such a fan of Baby Quest. Um, they are an amazing foundation, nonprofit, and they award grants to um, all kinds of people that are trying to have children. Yeah. I mean, they're basically changing people's lives right. by giving them money to have IVF or just assisted reproduction. Mm-hmm. And we have the same values. You know, yeah. we're just trying to help people live their dreams by having a family. And so I have personally donated money, um, pledged to donate money to sponsor a family. And that oh, family might be um, you know, a gay couple, it may be a single woman, a single man. It, it, it's just, I love the fact that they do not exclude anyone from having yeah. a future of having a, a family. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yes. And I think that's also one of the things I've really enjoyed about Housewives of Atlanta these past few seasons is seeing everybody have a different reproductive journey yes. and just showing the transparency about yes. how many different walks of it goes for black, especially for yes. black women who are just internally seen as like childbearers and like there's yes. like shame behind <laughs> that stuff. So it's been really great to see the transparency and that there's yes. foundations out there like Baby Quest. I love, I didn't know that it existed, yeah. honestly. And I've been blessed in my 
in my life and in my career to be able to have, you know, a little money put aside to be able to afford to have IVF or, you know, something that's ex- as expensive as it is just to even get tested. Yeah. Um, or medication. Right. Um, and for them to be in this world and knowing that you should not be excluded from living your dreams because of money. Mm-hmm. So I, that's what I really love about them. That's a great message. Well, yes. thank you so much for being here. Thank I really you. enjoyed talking to thank you. you. You can watch Kenya on The Real Housewives of Atlanta Sundays on Bravo. Up next, Zach is talking to the author of the new book, Frankly in Love. Here's a treat from BuzzFeed Reader. Our November BuzzFeed book club it pick is David Yoon's best-selling novel, Frankly in Love. And David Yoon joins me now to talk about his debut young adult novel, Frankly in Love. Good morning, David. Good morning. Hi, everybody. Hi, thank you so much for being here. So, David, Frankly in Love is about a Korean-American teenager who pretends to be dating one of his family friends so his parents don't know that he's dating a white girlfriend or a white woman. Where did you get the inspiration for this story? Um, actually, it, it all it all started when I had my daughter. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but when when uh, I had when I had her, I started thinking about my childhood and all this crazy stuff just came flooding back because you're seeing life from a, a kid's point of view, you know. And um, that kind of bled into middle school and then high school. And I remember this funny detail where, you know, my parents were pretty traditional too, like Frank's, and they only wanted me to date Korean girls. And so, like as a result, I had to hide my whole love life from them. Um, just keep it all keep it all secret, and only later did I realize that's a weird thing to do. You know, it's like yeah. hiding something got huge from from people who are that important in your life, and I was like, well, that could be a, a pretty good story idea. So that's that's when I came up with the idea of of Frank, who who has traditional parents, teaming up with Joy, who also has traditional parents, and they they pretend to date each other, right? Mm-hmm. That way they date whoever they want in secret. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> so you already touched on this some, but most of the racism we see depicted in media is usually from white people towards people of color, people like us. But you've made it the perspective from Frank's parents. Talk to me about writing that story, because I don't think I've seen this very much. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, what, my own parents, like Frank's parents, are, you know, they're very traditional. And and um, it, it took me a long time to realize that that you can call it racist, but another way of looking at it, if you want to flip that script a little bit, is to, to realize that a lot of countries around the world are really ethnically defined. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to like Korea or Japan or you know, Mexico, it's like you're either, it's either you're Korean or you're not. And it's not like a black American can go to Korea and become Korean. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. It's not in the mindset. And so you've got what's happening is you've got people coming from these sort of ethnically homogenous countries coming to America, which is like a super unusual country in that we're the only ones that I can really think of who are seriously like who are taking serious this whole like multicultural diversity experiment and and really holding ourselves accountable for it. Um, but when when those two cultures clash, that's when a gap is formed. And I was really interested in exploring that gap. And it's, it's one thing to call it racism, mm-hmm. but it's another thing to call it like, what happens when you do take, you know, people from an ethnically homogenous country and put it in an ethnically diverse country like ours? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. And I sure it has to be really interesting for your own experience. You know, your wife, Nicola Yoon, is a Jamaican-American. And I'd love to hear, did you ever face any pressure from your own family about having an interracial relationship as an adult? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... Things were were rough for a long time. I I can't really sugarcoat it. It was bad. Um, so yeah, we we struggled a lot, and it was painful. Um, basically, I you know didn't talk to my parents for like ten years, um, and that was a big bummer. Uh, but they they turned around. I think um, as they got older, uh, when they're basically faced with their own mortality, mm-hmm. you start they start to realize well, there's not that much time left. We have to spend our time that we have on this earth together and loving one, one another instead of holding on to these, um, these beliefs that, that aren't really true after all. Because in the end, it's just us. We're all we have. 
Yeah, and you noted that they've come back around, and they should because your wife is an incredible, incredible person. She's the author <laughs> of very successful young adult books, Everything, Everything, and The Sun is also a star. And she recently tweeted, Dream come true. We've worked for about 20 years to get to this moment of seeing both our books on a shelf. So how did you both support one another while working to get to this point? Um, you know, we met in writing school. Uh, we went both went to Emerson College. Um, go Lions, I think it is in Boston. Um, and we we're in our first workshops together and, uh, we had a, a circle of writing friends and we've, we've just always written together, um, throughout our whole relationship. I think our, our creative writing process is actually a core part of our relationship. Um, so yeah, if she needs to go away and write, I'll, I'll take care of our daughter and, and the house. And if I need to do that, I, she just did that for me like over the last week. So she's a little stir crazy at this point. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, we, I, I read all of her, her first drafts and she reads all of mine. It's, it's, um, it's, she's, she's my best and, and most favorite writing partner. Oh my God. I love this. You're giving us hope on a Monday that there is love <laughs> out there. <laughs> well, David, before I let you go, frankly, love is being developed as a movie, which congratulations on that huge, huge, huge. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, and is there anything you can tell us about the film? Um, I, I mean, Hollywood is kind of a black box. I, <laughs> I write books. <laughs> I write the books. Um, but I, I do know that the script is, is done. Yep. And so um, who knows? I'll, I'll, there's probably more updates to come, uh, but I'll, I'll share that stuff on my Instagram feed. Okay. Is there anyone that you want to be in the movie, a dream cast member? Oh, geez, Louise. There's so many good actors out there. Just, just the, the actors that, that I was lucky enough to work with for the book trailer were, were fantastic. So I don't know. I, 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 I'd be happy to, to work with anyone who feels as passionately about the story and the issues and sort of our time as I do. That would be great. Mm-hmm. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been lovely catching up. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Bye. Be sure to read Frankly in Love along with the BuzzFeed Book Club this month. It's available wherever books are sold. Up next, Alex is sitting down with Leslie Odom Jr. On Friday, Leslie Odom Jr. tweeted, I trust that one day I will find words adequate to describe all that the Harriet experience has meant to me, all that Ms. Tubman and Mr. Still mean to me. For now, there is gratitude and meditation. The movie opened this weekend and Grammy and Tony Award winner Leslie Odom Jr. is here with me now. Welcome. Thank you. So uh, clearly working on this film left quite an impression. Have you even started to find the words to describe the experience? Haven't, haven't, haven't found them, no. Um, I think um, everybody was obviously pleased. The movie did well this weekend, better than expected. And, I, you know, I just, um, no, there's really just only gratitude, you know, for the way the movie's been received. Uh, the, the words that have come back to me about it, I'm yeah, blown away. Mm, um, now, what was it like going back in time uh, every single day, a day that you were on set, um, you know, and, and being there? Like, what was it, what was it like for you? That's my favorite thing about the about the movies, you know. In theater, theater is all about imagination, right? Music too. It's all about um, it's the non literal spaces, you know, the concert spaces and the the stage. But film is very literal. You mm-hmm. step on that on the set with the Paul Taswell costume and the and the you know the attention to detail. So it is. It's like time travel. Mm. There's very very little of your imagination that you have to use. You kind of just step on the set and be. Mm. Well, I mean, of course, Casey Lemons brought this story to the screen. Um, there's been so much praise for her work. What do you want people to know about the woman who is uh, behind the camera? Oh, I have such deep abiding affection for Casey. I, you know, I love her taste. I love her eye. She's like, um, she's punk rock, you punk know? Rock. Yeah, yeah, I just, I, I, I dig Casey. I, I hope I get to work with her a lot. I texted her this weekend, like, you know, um, me and I were texting and I, I said, you know, maybe the next time I'll be hiring you. Oh, you know really? I mean? like, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Well, I have this album now and yeah. I've got all these videos, you know, which is like, you know, we've got um, 
11, 13 tracks, but 11 original songs. And I, I look at that as a, 11 stories to tell. You know, we can make 11 little movies. And so I'm thinking about the directors I want to work with, the people that I've collaborated with that I want to call and beg to work with me again, and Casey's one of them. Did she sure. say, did she give you a, a yes or a she get, answer oh, on yeah, that? Oh, okay, yeah, cool. she, yeah, Casey's down for whatever, yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Are, are there any other directors that you're thinking about to work with uh, for your album? Oh my God, yeah. There's a, I have an idea for like a, a little noir thriller that I'd like John Ridley to direct, to wow. write and direct. And my buddy Takashi Dosher, I did a, f a, a film that he dire directed. I want him to come and direct a, a video. Yeah, for me. So yeah, there's, I want to call them all and beg them all. Yeah. Janelle, I worked with Janelle, you, you know, in this yeah, movie. Yeah, and, absolutely. And you know, Janelle can come get behind the director's chair, you know, and direct for me. She's such a visionary and, um, uh, a free thinker and you know she's she's out there so i want i want some of that on this project yeah well janelle is not uh, the only additionally ta incredibly talented musician um your co-star and fellow tony winner cynthia arrivo um plays Har harriet tubman of yes. course um did you ever cross paths with her previously in the broadway community oh yeah you don't know yeah cynthia is a good friend of mine she's the godmother to our our daughter so <laughs> we're very close and before broadway we met uh I met Cynthia at a at a wedding, and uh, it's a very long story. But the short version of it is, I I thought she was a literally I thought she was a child when I first saw her. She was kind of dressed in you know knee high socks and little Daisy Duke's big old Steve Urkel glasses, and I was like, oh what a what a sweet <laughs> face. You know, I thought she was 13, 14 max. And so when I go away for you know the the wedding. We had like a long day, so I went away. I came back later that night, and later that night she was like dressed to vamp, mm -hmm. like dressed for diva. She was singing at the wedding and I was like, I saw like her complete range in a mm. day. So we, yeah, we've been friends for many years. Mm. Now, um, the character that you play in this film is William Still. Um, are there challenges to playing someone who uh, is already rooted, you know, so rooted in history and has even been played before by others? Yeah, no, there's challenges. The challenges for me um, are really about, the, it's the same ones that I've, you know, had with the in the with Burr was mm. like you know making a making this uh, these people that kind of become bronze statues mm. in our minds. You know, making them a um, a full human being. You know, mm -hmm. with blood pumping in the veins, a heart beating in the chest. You want them as alive as we are. So you want their their anger, their lust, their passion, their pettiness, mm -hmm. their you know, their ridiculousness, their brilliance. You want all of that on display. Mm. You know, so that they feel like we feel. Mm. I hope that's how mm -hmm. we feel. Yeah, well, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you've known Cynthia for a long time. And of course, there were a lot of opinions out there about her casting mm. um, over uh, both being a Brit and over some tweets that she made in the past that she said were taken out of context. Is that something that you spoke about with her at all? Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. We didn't, you know, that didn't go unnoticed, the sort of the talking that was happening mm. in the streets. Yeah, we talked about it a lot. And we talked about... Um, how to best handle it and address it, you know, because it's really hard to have any kind of nuanced discussion on social media, mm -hmm. right? You know, there's, a, there's a whole lot of stuff that comes at, at me, you know, mm -hmm. about the fact that we're friends. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that the fact that I haven't, what, abandoned her and mm -hmm. stopped being her friend because of a tweet that she made or, you know, and it's, so it's, it's really hard to have nuanced discussion in that context. But as we've met people face to face and gone around and been able to have uh, talks mm -hmm. with people, you know, and connect with people. I think we have been able to address it at the very least, um, be willing to listen to what people have to say mm -hmm. and, and learn, mm -hmm. you know, if we don't, if we don't have a response right away, we can listen and we can learn. Mm -hmm. Well, I do want to talk more about your new album. It's called Mr. And we have this tweet from La Patrona. The new Leslie Odom Jr. album is going to be popping. The four songs off it are so good. And you spent uh, two years writing this. So, so what else can you tell us about it? I did. I spent um, a little more than two years. I mean, about three years ago, I, I started my writing sessions. I, t I, I started telling people I was going to make an album of all original music before I'd written one song. <laughs> so... Um, I didn't really know how to begin. So I started having writing sessions with collaborators and 
uh, they were traumatic and horrible oh. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, it, it, it takes a moment um, to figure out your process. There's, there's a million different ways that that can go. Mm. An original, I can do an original album with you, but how are we going to, you know, how do we get the music out of you? So we had to try a lot of different things, and that is not comfortable mm. always, you know? Um, you're working with... I, I was working with people I didn't know, and and you know it was just you know. That, anyway, we found over time we found the way that that it was going to work for us, which is essentially call a lot of my friends mm-hmm. and and spend time with them. You know, Rafael Casal was a major like lifesaver in the process, mm-hmm. um, uh, and he, him, and I just spent a lot of time together, and we wrote. You know, we. We'd write, you know, three or four songs a week, and and once we found like a, once we found something we were confident in, mm. a, a style and a sound, then we felt comfortable to invite other people in to help us make more songs like that. Mm. And you're also going on tour. I'm going on a tour yeah. next year. First yeah. tour, baby's first bus. Um, so yeah, I've, I've never, I've been around the road, uh, you know, I've been around the country a lot with symphonies and orchestras and stuff, but never tour bus city 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 so we're we're excited if it does well we'll you know hit all the places we don't hit the first time we're getting yeah. a lot of tweets of like why aren't you coming here why aren't you coming here <laughs> i mean that is always a good That's thing a good right thing. yeah yeah but yeah we want to go everywhere i mean we can't go everywhere right away but we want to get yeah. Everywhere. Well, listen, I'm going to definitely stay tuned for these videos because, you. you know, I want to see I want to see this Casey directed video. Right. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed about Janelle Monet as well. We have we have two videos that are going to premiere in the next two weeks. One of them, Philip Humans, who won the Tribeca Film Festival. Directed. Yeah. I'm really excited. Yeah. He was actually just here. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. A pleasure. Harriet is in theaters now and Leslie's album Mr. drops this Friday. Up next, we're reading more of your tweets. Welcome back, y'all. It's time for Add Us. And I have to make a quick note because it came up in your interview with Leslie okay. that Philip Humans is directing one of his videos. And something that's been so incredible about working on the show is how like all of our guests somehow connect and work together. And when I was in LA last week, I would drive down the street and like every person who had ever been on the show was on every billboard. And I was like, girl, we these girls are really out here working and hustling and we get to hang out with these people. I love people. the crossover. We need like the crossover episode yes. or something. Yeah. I guess you like come on the show and then something else is gonna happen big for you. We yeah. are the gatekeepers for oh, well, these people. I'm kidding. <laughs> you can say that. I don't, you know. I might first say back. I'm feeling, smile right now. <laughs> I'm feeling real confident. All right. Well, let's get into these tweets. During our conversation about Apple's new series, The Morning Show, Christian tweeted, the hosts of AM to DM are hosts of a morning show speaking about The Morning Show. Meta. Accurate. Like, t- 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 we are. I, I joke that we should play a game where we show you all the behind the scenes. I actually think this could be really connect. fun of figuring mm-hmm. out who is who on The Morning oh, Show. Oh, we're going to yeah, do it. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> After our conversation, our fired, fired tweets conversation about leaving events early, Cini tweeted, "Want to get out of here? My love language. It yes. is so true. Wanna Knowing when you got to go home, go to bed. You've had enough. Yes. Yep. Plus, and then add like, go get a taco too. We're in love. And that getting yep. married. Well, after our conversation about dreams, Rachel Hands tweeted, "I dreamed a coworker needed help negotiating with her landlord over the ketchup bill because in the dream, <laughs> ketchup was one of their utility bills. I mean." Dreams, a wild time. Ketchup. So, a util- how much ketchup does one eat for it to for be a utility? Be, to each their own. All right. To each their own condiment user. Yeah, you know, these, these farmers need their coins. It's so. true. Thank you to our guests, Jason Leopold, Henry Gomez, David Yoon, Leslie Odom Jr., and Kenya Moore. We, we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. with more Amp to DM. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.